and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams of pub quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. That was a great intro. <laughs> I like that you mix it up a little bit. Yeah. Put you a little l- emphasis on different things. B- kept people guessing. Yeah. Ooh, what podcast am I listening to? <laughs> this doesn't sound familiar to me. <laughs> um, so Julia and I... Uh, just got back from uh, a beautiful vacation. In the beautiful country of Canada. Of Canada, yes. It was, we went to Niagara on the Lake uh, and we mm, day drank uh, a lot. A lot. Ooh. But we stayed at a beautiful Airbnb that had a gorgeous, um, a beautiful backyard. A beautiful backyard that I laid in mm-hmm. several times, mm-hmm. just in the grass. Mm-hmm. Flowers. Uh, birds bees a friendly bee that landed on you and cleaned just itself to hang out yeah he just wanted to hang out with old jewel and then he flew away it was like bye lady uh it was great and we drank a lot of really good wine and we met some lovely people and we actually met a listener yes which was so exciting we uh had drinks with corinne who works in niagara on the lake and uh she gave us she was so generous oh, and gave us an enormous pile so many treats of baked goods and some really delicious sandwiches oh, too oh my gosh yeah, from uh, the bakery that she works at. And so a uh, little shout out to Corinne. Hi, Corinne. Hi, Corinne. It was lovely to meet her. She is so great. Um, and it's it was deeply weird. I think for both of us. Yeah. Uh, for both Corinne and us. Because uh, <laughs> she was like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm meeting you guys. And we were like, I can't believe we don't already know you and you like our podcast. <laughs> so um, it was a lovely mutual time at the Old Angel Inn. And uh, so a shout out to Corinne for um, giving us those lovely treats and also listening to our podcast. It was very kind. Yes, it was wonderful. Um, so my topic today, mm-hmm. you uh, in the car on our way to Canada <laughs> said um, it was for a learned league question, I think, or something. It was Pushkin was the answer. Yeah. And you said, what do I? I don't know anything about Pushkin. I don't know who he is. Who is His he? name keeps coming up. Why? So I decided to provide you a service and I'm doing an episode on Alexander Pushkin today. And I originally was going to call it more cushion for the Pushkin. But instead, <laughs> Steve Steve talked me out of that one. So it's called When Pushkin Comes to Shove. I mean, when you tell me what you were going to call the podcast, it's just the same as if you did call it that. I know. I know. I, I didn't want it to go to waste. <clears throat> but anyway, serious Russian literature now. Oh, my God. The most dour and severe of the literature. Yes, the very, very severe literature. Um, but uh, it's kind of light at the same time. So, all right. Alexander Pushkin was a Russian poet, playwright, and novelist of the Romantic era, who is considered by many to be the greatest Russian poet and the founder of modern Russian literature. Jesus, and I've never... I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, the Russians love this guy all right oh my god they love pushkin so much so he's their he's their dickens he is their dickens he is the russian dickens i would say yeah uh alexander sergeyevich pushkin was born to sergey and nadezia pushkin on may 26th 1799 on his father's side he was a descendant of russian nobility and on his mother's side he was related to an african lord Really? Uh, yeah. Pushkin's great-grandfather was Abram Petrovich Ganibal, an African page kidnapped to Constantinople as a gift to the Ottoman Sultan and later transferred to Russia as a gift for Peter the Great. Oh, my God. Yeah. Later research conclusively established that Ganibal was born in Central Africa in an area bordering Lake Chad in modern-day Cameroon. After education in France as a military engineer, Ganibal became governor of Raval and eventually general and chef, the third most senior army rank in charge of the building of sea forts and canals in Russia. Well, good for him. I know. He was kidnapped and given as a gift. He was given. Well, you know. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's terrible. But he really, like, uh, unlike a lot of his uh, fellow African people, uh, he eventually really rose through the ranks of Russian society. And so... uh, Alexander Pushkin is part African. Interesting. Yeah, that's so really interesting. Uh, however, by the time Alexander was born, the family had gradually lost most of their wealth and influence, and they were lowered to the position of minor nobility. Alexander's family's life was far from ideal. His father was domineering and easily irritated, and his mother often left the young child alone in pursuit of her social ambitions. Yeah, right. 
Yeah, sounds right. Um, <laughs> Pushkin was entrusted to nursemaids and French tutors and mostly spoke French until the age of 10. Hmm. He became acquainted with the Russian language through communication with household serfs and his nanny, Arina Rodinova, who he loved dearly and was more attached to than his own mother. Uh, between 1811 and 1817, Pushkin attended a special school for privileged children of the nobility. Pushkin was not a very good student in most subjects, but he performed brilliantly in French and Russian literature. Uh, he published his first poem at 15. Oh. He wrote about 130 poems between 1814 and 1817 while still at school. And most of his works written between 1817 and 1820 were not published because his topics were considered inappropriate. Ooh. Yeah. Uh, when he finished as part of the first graduating class of the prestigious Imperial Lyceum in Tsarskoye Selo near St. Petersburg, his talent was already widely recognized within the Russian literary scene. So this kid is like 18. Oh my gosh. And so he's actually more like Picasso. Yeah. He's a little bit more like Picasso where he had everything he could possibly want allowed to him. And he was very good at these couple things and yes. he started to get noticed. Yes. When, because at a young age, there were fewer people on earth. And so therefore <laughs> he didn't have as much competition. Uh, while at the Lyceum, Pushkin was heavily influenced by the Kantian liberal individualist teachings of Alexander Petrovitz Kunitsian, whom Pushkin would later commemorate in his poem, 19 October. Pushkin also immersed himself in the thought of the French Enlightenment, to which he would remain permanently indebted throughout his life, particularly Diderot and Voltaire, whom he described as, quote, the first to follow the new road and to bring the lamp of philosophy into the dark archives of history. So... Um, after school, Pushkin plunged into the vibrant and raucous intellectual youth culture of the capital, St. Petersburg. So um, Pushkin, by a very young age, was already into the French Enlightenment, um, which was the beginning of uh, kind of the the first rumblings of the French Revolution. Mm -hmm. So it was a lot of, uh, you know, I don't know why these few people have all the power in this country and we have like a peasant class right. or the serfs as they're known Um and I think everybody should be able to participate in uh, politics and government. Mm -hmm. Like, why can't we just do that? And so also he was, science. Also science. Also science. So he was very influenced by this because he loved French literature so much. Um, and this got him in trouble basically throughout his life. Mm. So um, he was warmly received in literary circles, in circles of lovers of wine, women, and song, and in groups where political liberals view in revolutionary poems his ode Freedom, the village, and a number of poems on Alexander I and his minister, Arakeyev. So, in 1820, he published his first long poem, which is called Ruslan and Ludmilla, with much controversy about its subject and style. It was a romance composed of fantastic adventures, but told with the humor of the previous century. Yes, the beautiful Ludmilla. Yes, Ludmilla. Um, all these names, I feel like I'm saying like, uh, like a... Um, like a James Bond film <laughs> thing, or it's like Pushkin, Kamianka, Mikhailovskaya. Uh, so Pushkin gradually became committed to social reform and emerged as a spokesman for literary radicals. This is not good. That <laughs> angered the government and led to his transfer from the capital in May 1820. He went to the Caucasus and to Crimea and then to Kamianka and Chinasau in Moldavia, where he became a Freemason. I mean, I think they were all Freemasons at that point. He joined the Feliki Etria, a secret organization whose purpose was to overthrow Ottoman rule in Greece and establish an independent Greek state. Uh, he was inspired by the Greek Revolution, and when the war against the Ottoman Turks broke out, he kept a diary recording the events of the national uprising. Uh, he did not, uh, he did not partake in this, uh, but he kept a diary, so that's fine. Okay, he's All a writer. Right. You know what is it? What more is he mm -hmm. going to do? Um, he stayed in Chinisau and in, until 1823 and wrote two romantic poems, which brought him acclaim. Uh, the Captive of the Caucasus and The Fountain of Bakchisare. Uh, he was happy there at first, but later he felt bored by the life in small towns and took up again a life of gambling and drinking. He was always short of money. Uh, he worked as a civil servant, uh, but did not make much money. And his family refused to support him because they didn't like him that much. Uh, Pushkin began to earn money when his, with his poetic works, but not enough to keep up with his wealthy friends. And in 1823, Pushkin moved to Odessa, where he again clashed with the government, which sent him into exile on his mother's rural estate of Mikhailovskaya from 1824 to 1826. So when Pushkin arrived there, his relations with his parents were not good. 
His father was angry with him, and the family left the estate around mid-November, and Pushkin found himself alone with the family nurse, who he was he got along with anyway. Okay. Um, he lived alone for much of the next two years, occasionally visiting a neighboring town and infrequently entertaining old Petersburg friends. And at this time, the nurse told Pushkin many folk tales, and it is believed that she gave him a feeling for folk life that showed itself in many of his poems. Mm, okay. Uh, so in Mikhailovskia... Uh, Pushkin wrote nostalgic love poems, which he dedicated to Elizaveta Voronsova, wife of Malorysia's general governor. Um, Eugene Onegin was begun in 1824 and finished in 1831. Eugene Onegin. So keep that in mind. There will be more about this later. But this is a novel in verse, uh, basically poetry, and most regarded as Pushkin's most famous work. See, it doesn't sound like a Russian name to me. No, it doesn't. Which is why it never stuck. Exactly. Okay. Um, It is a quote-unquote novel about life at that time constructed in order to permit digressions. So there's a lot. It's it's a story of a man, Eugene Onegin, but there's a lot of digressions into different parts Mm -hmm. of different stories that have a lot to do with Russian life at the time. Um, so so it's a it also involves a variety of incidents and tones as well. Um, the heart of the tale concerns the life of Eugene Onegin, a bored nobleman who rejects the advances of a young girl, Tatiana. He meets her later when she is greatly changed and now sophisticated, and he falls in love with her. He is in turn rejected by her because although she loves him, she is married. And that's basically it. Mm. Um, it's a lot more complicated than that, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So in 1825, Pushkin wrote the poem to Star, Star, Star. Is it? Asterisk, asterisk, yeah, asterisk. Yeah, it's asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Uh, it is, but asterisk, asterisk, asterisk is a lot harder to say. It is generally believed that he dedicated this poem to Anna Kern, but there are other opinions. Poet Mikhail Dudin believed that the poem was dedicated to the serf Olga Kalishnikova, and Pushkinist, which is a real thing, Kira Viktorova believed that the poem was dedicated to the Empress Elizaveta Alexeyevna. Uh, Pushkin's two years at Mikhailovskia was extremely rich in poetic output. Among other works, he wrote the first three chapters of Onegin, and Pushkin also wrote what would become his most famous play, the drama Boris Gudinov, while at his mother's estate. He could not, however, gain permission to publish it until five years later. The original and uncensored version of the drama was not staged until 2007. Ooh, wow. Yeah. Uh, in addition, he composed many important lyrics, poetic dramas set to music, and a humorous tale in verse entitled Count Newlin. Uh, authorities summoned Pushkin to Moscow after his poem Ode to Liberty was found among the belongings of the rebels from the Decemberist uprising uh, in 1825. Being exiled in 1820, Pushkin's friends and family continually petitioned for his release, sending letters and meeting with Tsar Alexander I and the Tsar Nicholas I on the heels of the Decemberist uprising. So... The Decemberist Uprising, what is it? Why do we talk about it? Uh-huh. Besides it being um, the name, of, the a name band. of a band. My crane wife. Um, so the Decemberist uh, revolt took place. I don't know anything about the Decemberists, um, <laughs> except they have uh, the guy sings in like an affected Irish British accent. And uh, there's a lot of like weird folktale things in yeah. their lyrics. They're great. The Toast did a wonderful article. Oh, they did, yes. About about like, is this a Decemberist title or not? Um, I'll probably use it as my interstitial music. (laughs) So, the Decemberist revolt took place in Imperial Russia on December 26th, 1825. Now, all of these dates are a Russian calendar, which is like slightly off, but just for consistency. Russian Revolution. Exactly. Uh, Russian army officers led about 3,000 soldiers in a protest against Tsar Nicholas I's assumption of the throne after his elder brother Constantine removed himself from the line of succession. Because these events occurred in December, the rebels were called the Decemberists, obviously. Uh, The uprising, which was suppressed by Nicholas I, took place in Peter Square in St. Petersburg, and in 1925, to mark the centenary of the event, the square was renamed Decemberist Square, but in 2008, the name was changed back to its original name, which was Senate Square. Okay. Um, essentially, the Decemberists wanted a more liberal government and an abolition of serfdom, and they thought that Constantine was sympathetic to that, which is why they wanted him to be okay. the czar. Except- so he was next in line, and he was like, never mind, like, I don't no want to do this. And they were like, but... And they were like, but you're the best. Um, and he was sympathetic to these things to a certain extent, since he was known to eschew court etiquette eschew eschew since he was known to eschew deny court etiquette (laughs) and to take frequent stands against the wishes of his brother alexander the first for which he is remembered fondly in russia but he was still russian nobility 
And actually, he was a tyrannical despot in the uh, to the Polish while he was governor of Poland. Oh. So the Polish hate him. The Russians yeah. love him. What Poor are you going to do? Polish people. We've been through so much. I know. That's terrible. So when the Decemberist uprising took place, Pushkin, still in Mikhailovskia, was not a participant, but he soon learned that he was implicated, for all the Decemberists had copies of his early political poems. <laughs> uh, he destroyed his papers that might be dangerous for himself or others, uh, but in late spring of 1826, he sent the Tsar a petition that he was to be released from exile. He was like, "That's enough's enough, right? Yeah. Like, And he's in Odessa, right? He's in Odessa. So, Ukraine. Yeah. Okay. Um, so after an investigation that showed Pushkin had been behaving himself, he was summoned uh, to leave immediately for an audience with Nicholas I. On September 8th, still grimy from the road, he was taken in to see Nicholas. At the end of the interview, Pushkin was jubilant that he was released from exile and that Nicholas I had undertaken to be the personal censor of his works. Hmm. Yeah. So Pushkin thought that he would be free to travel as he wished, that he could freely participate in the publication of journals, and that he would be totally free of censorship, except in cases where he himself might consider questionable and wish to refer to his royal censor. Like, he thought he was going to have free reign, right? and that he could check in with Nicholas every so often, and everything was going back to normal. (laughs) Yeah. He soon found out otherwise. So, Count Bednikov chief of the gendarme led Pushkin know that without advance permission, he was not to make any trip participate in any journal or publish or even read in literary circles, any work. It's like, wait a second. Yeah. Uh, so he gradually discovered that he had to account for every word in action, like a child or a parolee. So, uh, several times he was questioned by the police about poems he had written. So uh, during this time he was still writing, but he was not allowed to publish. Okay. Um, so it was very, he, uh, it was very difficult for him to make money. And this was is he like, man, I should have just stayed in Ukraine. <laughs> I should have just stayed in Odessa. Damn. So the youthful Pushkin had been a lighthearted scoffer at the state of matrimony, but freed from exile. He spent the years from 1826 to his marriage in 1831, largely in search of a wife and in preparing to settle down. He sought no less than the most beautiful woman in Russia for his bride. No less than the no most beautiful. No less than the most beautiful. In 1829, he found her in Natalia Goncharova and presented a formal proposal in April of that year. She finally agreed to marry him on the condition that his ambiguous situation with the government be clarified, which it was. As a kind of wedding present, Pushkin was given permission to publish Boris Gudinov after four years of waiting for authorization under his, quote, own responsibility. And he was formally betrothed on May 6th, 1830. So this is where it gets juicy. So Pushkin was married to Natalia Goncharova on February 18th, 1831 in Moscow. In May, after a honeymoon made disagreeable by Moscow aunties and in-laws, the Pushkins moved to Tsartskoye Selo in order to live near the capital, but inexpensively and in inspirational solitude and in the circle of sweet recollections. This is a quote. Uh, These expectations were defeated when the cholera epidemic in Petersburg caused the Tsar and the court to take refuge in July in Tsartskoye Selo. In October 1831, the Pushkins moved to an apartment in Petersburg where they lived for the remainder of his life. He and his wife became henceforth inextricably involved with favors from the czar and with court society. Okay. Uh, Madame Pushkina's beauty immediately made a sensation in society and her admirers included the czar himself. Mm. Um, quick thing about Russian names. Um, uh, women who take their husband's name then have their names. Uh, the husband's name becomes um, their feminized. Yes. Mm-hmm. So it's, her name is not Mrs. Pushkin. She is Mrs. Pushkina. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just an interesting So thing. mine would be Novakova. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yours would be Novakova. Exactly. Um, so Tsar is in love with Pushkina. He's like, wow, what a hottie. Why does Pushkin have her? Um, so on December 30th, 1833, Nicholas I made Pushkin a Kamajunker. Or, what? Yes. It's a title. Uh, the Gentleman of the Chamber, basically. Um, which is a low court rank usually granted at the time to youths of high aristocratic families. So he gave him this title, like you can be gentlemen of the chamber. Okay. And Pushkin was deeply offended all the more because he was convinced that it was conferred not for any quality of his own, but only to make it proper for his beautiful wife to attend court balls. Cause he wasn't part of Russian nobility, but they gave him a title so that they could see his wife more often, basically. Which is like, get a photograph. I know, know? right? Jeez. Get a picture to last longer. (laughs) So dancing at one of these balls was uh, followed in March 1834 by her having a miscarriage. Uh, 
which is sucks. Uh, while she was convalescing in the provinces, Pushkin sh- spoke openly in letters to her of his indignation and humiliation. The letters were intercepted and sent to the police and to the czar. When Pushkin discovered this, he in fury submitted his resignation from the service on June 25th, 1834. He was like, I will not be a gentleman of the chamber anymore, you asshole. So, however, he had reason to fear that the worst from the Tsar's displeasure at this action, and he felt obliged to retract his resignation. Pushkin could ill afford the expense of gowns for Madame Pushkina for court balls or the time required for performing court duties. His woes further increased when her two unmarried sisters came in autumn 1834 to live with them. In addition, in the spring of 1834, he had taken over the management of his improvident father's estate and had undertaken to settle the debts of his heedless brother. The result was endless cares, annoyances, and even outlays from his own pocket. Can you tell that I got this information from a site that was directly translated from Russian? (laughs) There was not a lot. Heedless. Heedless, brother. Um, There was not a lot in English about Pushkin. Interesting. Uh, So just FYI. So he's got to pay for his brother's stuff. He's got two sisters-in-law that he does not love um, hanging out in his apartment. Um, And he's got a lot of stress. So he came to be in such financial straits that he applied for a leave of absence to retire to the country for three or four years, or if that was refused, for a substantial sum as loan to cover his most pressing debts and for the permission to publish a journal. He was like, I don't have any money. Can you please just like let me do something? Yeah. So the leave of absence was brusquely refused, but a loan of 30,000 rubles was, after some trouble, negotiated. Um, permission to publish, beginning in 1836, a quarterly literary journal called The Contemporary was finally granted as well. So the journal was not a financial success, and it involved him in endless editorial and financial cares and in difficulties with the censors, um, because it gave importantly placed enemies among them the opportunity to pay him off. So short visits to the country in 1834 and in 1835 resulted in the completion of only one major work known as The Tale of the Golden Cockerel. And during 1836, he only completed his novel on Pugachev called The Captain's Daughter and a number of his finest lyrics. Excuse me. Yes. What's a cockerel? Um, is it a bird? It's a bird. It's a. Okay. It's a. Um, it's a male chicken. It's a. It's a cock. Cockerel. It's a rooster, Julia. <laughs> the tail of the golden cockerel. cockerel yes. Okay. So it's. Um, it is a. Uh, it's like a morality tale couched in like you know Russian folklore kind of thing. Okay. So. Thank you. You're welcome. Anytime. Meanwhile, Meanwhile. Madame Pushinka loved the attention which her beauty attracted in the highest society. She was fond of quote-unquote coquetting or (laughs) flirting and being surrounded by admirers who included the Tsar himself. So, in 1834, Madame Pushkina met a young man who was not content with coquetry, a handsome French royalist emigre in Russian service who was adopted by the Dutch ambassador Henrecken. Young Dantes Henrecken pursued... Madame Pushkina for two years and finally so openly and unabashedly that by autumn 1836 it was becoming a scandal so where was Alexander during this he was they weren't in the same place uh they were no they were in the same place okay but she would go to balls and he was like forget it I'm not going to ball okay um and she was being invited to all these things because she was so beautiful and the czar liked her so much that he was like fine I don't even give I don't give a shit um, but then this guy who's like so obviously was like, let's do this. Mm-hmm. I love you. Um, and she, it didn't seem like she was like, like, she didn't seem like she was saying, oh no, please uh-huh, don't. Uh-huh. Uh, but there isn't her account of this. So okay. I certainly will not be putting words in her mouth. On November 4th, 1836, Pushkin received several copies of a certificate nominating him assistant of the International Order of Cuckolds. <gasps> yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, so, sick burn. <laughs> yeah, sick burn. The sickest. So Pushkin immediately challenged Dantes. At the same time, he made desperate efforts to settle his indebtedness to the treasury. So he's broke, and at the same time, he's like, I'm going to kill you. So... Pushkin twice allowed postponements of the duel and then retracted the challenge when he learned from public rumor that Dantes was really in love with Madame Pushkina's sister, Ekaterina Goncharova. On January 10th, 1837, the marriage actually took place contrary to Pushkin's expectations. He thought that that was just rumor. So now they're brothers, brothers-in-law? Now they're brothers-in-law. However, 
Pushkin refused to attend the wedding or even receive the couple in his home. But in society, Dantes pursued Madame Pushkina even more openly. Oh. So he married her sister and then continued to pursue her. Then Dantes arranged a meeting with her by persuading her friend Idalia Politica to invite Madame Pushkina for a visit. Madame Politica left the two alone, but one of her children came in and Madame Pushkina managed to get away. Which this phrase makes me think that she this was not welcome mm. to her. So, however, upon hearing of the meeting, Pushkin sent an insulting letter to Henrekin, accusing him of being the author of the certificate of November 4th and the pander of his bastard. Which I don't know what that means, but that sounds rough. So, a couple things about duels. Mm-hmm. So, apparently, there were a lot of rules around duels. Because if there weren't any rules, then everybody would just be shooting or stabbing yeah, each other. Yeah, the ten duel commandments. Yeah, the ten duel commandments. Oh, as you, you know. haven't seen Hamilton. No, I haven't. It's a song. But I'm really glad it's that you song. just shoved that in my face <laughs> on our podcast. Wow. Wow. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, what I learned from not an award-winning musical was that duels, you always have to have a second. So there's a guy who's like your talker. You have your second so that he can negotiate. Yes, he negotiates. And so he says like, do you, my, my guy wants to duel with you. And the guy says, sure, I'll duel with you. And he's like, you get first refusal. Like you get to say, no, I don't want to duel. But if uh, you refuse, then you have to apologize. So uh, if you apologize, then the duel's off. But you get two times I come to you and say, are you going to duel? And if he says yes, both times he's like, all right, we're setting up the duel. Let's do this. Mm -hmm. And you bring a doctor and you pay him in advance. (laughs) Yeah. Go ahead. Sing it. (laughs) No, no, you're not going to do it. All right. Fine, fine, fine. So anyway, um, so a duel with Dantes took place on January 27th, 1837. It was pistols at dawn. Dantes fired first and Pushkin was mortally wounded. After he fell, he summoned the strength to fire his shot and to wound his adversary slightly in the arm. Pushkin died two days later on January 29th of peritonitis, which is infection of the lining of the abdomen. Mm -hmm. So he probably got shot in the tummy, which is that's the worst place to do it. There's all sorts of stuff that gets loose in there Mm -hmm. and causes infections. You got a lot of giblets in there. You got a lot of giblets. So at Pushkin's wife's request, he was put in the coffin in evening dress, not in chamber cadet uniform, um, which was the uniform provided by the czar. Mm-hmm. So that was his last like, fuck Big you. old yeah. middle finger. So the funeral service was initially assigned to the St. Isaac's Cathedral, but was moved to uh, a different church. Many people attended. After the funeral, the coffin was lowered into the basement where it stayed until February 3rd, where it was removed to uh, Piskov province. And Alexander Pushkin was buried on the grounds of the Sviatogorsky Monastery beside his mother. And his last home is now a museum. So a couple of things about his legacy. So Pushkin had four children from his marriage to Natalia, Maria, Alexander, Grigory, and Natalia, the last of whom married morganatically with Prince Nicholas Wilhelm of Nassau, of the House of Nassau-Weilberg, and was granted the title of Countess of Marenburg. So only the lines of Alexander and Natalia still remain. Uh, Natalia's granddaughter, Nadeja, married into the extended British royal family, and her husband was the uncle of Prince Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. Oh. Yeah. So descendants of the poet now live around the globe in the UK, the Czech Republic, Germany, Belgium, and in the United States. Um, Critics consider many of his works masterpieces, such as the poem The Bronze Horseman and the drama The Stone Guest, which is a tale of the fall of Don Juan. Uh, His poetic short drama, Mozart and Salieri, like the stone guest, one of the so-called four little tragedies. Um, And that was the inspiration for Peter Schaeffer's Amadeus, as well as providing the libretto, almost verbatim, to Rimsky-Korsakov's opera, Mozart and Salieri. Pushkin is also known for his short stories, and particularly his cycle, The Tales of the Late Ivan Petrovich, Belkin, including The Shot, uh, which were well-received. Pushkin himself preferred his verse novel, Eugene Onegin, which he wrote over the course of his life and which starting a great tradition of great Russian novels. Um, it follows a few central characters, but varies widely in tone and focus, as I mentioned before. Onegin is a work of such complexity that while only about 100 pages long, translator Vladimir Nabokov, as you may have heard, hmm. he needed two full volumes of material to fully render its meaning in English. Wow. Yeah. So because of this difficulty in translation, Pushkin's verse remains largely unknown to English readers. 
Even so, Pushkin has profoundly influenced Western writers like Henry James. Uh, Onegin was also made into several musicals, operas, and even films, one of which was the 1999 English-language Onegin, starring Rafe Fiennes as the titular Onegin, and Liv Tyler, of all people, as Tatiana. It's fine. It's a perfectly fine movie. Um, Pushkin's work also provided fertile ground for Russian composers. Glinka's Ruslan and Ludmilla is the earliest important Pushkin-inspired opera and a landmark in the tradition of Russian music. Uh, Tchaikovsky's operas Eugene Onegin in 1879 and The Queen of Spades in 1890 became perhaps better known outside of Russia than Pushkin's own works of the same name. Also, a couple of things. In 1937, the town of Tsarskoye Selo was renamed Pushkin in his honor. Okay. Uh, a minor planet, uh, 2208 Pushkin, discovered in 1977 by Soviet astronomer Nikolai Chernaik, is named after him. Also, a crater on Mercury is also named after him. Oh. Uh, the Pushkin Hills and the Pushkin Lake were named in his honor in Ben Nevis Township in the Concord District of Ontario, Canada. Uh, a Pushkin statue was unveiled inside the Mahan Garden in Manila, Philippines to commemorate the Philippines-Russia relations in 2010. Also, the Alexander Pushkin diamond, the second largest found in Russia and the former territory of the USSR, was named after him. And on November 28, 2009, a Pushkin monument was erected in Esmara, which is the capital of Eritrea. So he is all over the place. How about that? Yeah. Died in a duel. He was only 37. So we don't, we might not really know him that well because his works in Russian were so complex that people haven't been able to translate them it's properly. It's true. Um, yeah, because he, and I read somewhere and this was, uh, this was a lot, but apparently the way that he mixed Russian language, so he would, there was like low form of Russian language and there was like a high form of Russian mm-hmm. language. And he was the first to kind of mix the two okay. to kind of get more meeting. And so there was a lot of like, puns and like double meanings of things and like he would make reference like very specific references to stuff that unless you were like super well versed in all of these types of language he would like make little like French jokes it was crazy so in order to get like the full experience of what he was writing about and like his genius and all of this you have to be extremely well versed in not only like Russian language but also the history of Russian literature and Russian like folk lore so not a lot of us so not a lot of us i mean even nabokov was like all right i guess i got i'm gonna be doing this for the rest of my life (laughs) um so because pushkin was a romantic poet and novelist i decided i'm going to do a quiz on romance novels question number one this windswept romance novel set in the Australian outback and spanning nearly 50 years concerns a scandalous affair between Maggie, a resident on a remote ranch, and a handsome priest, Ralph de Bricassart. The spiky eight, 1983 television miniseries that was based on it was the second highest rated miniseries of all time behind Roots. What novel am I talking about? Question number two. This literary subgenre of romance novels, sometimes called bonnet rippers, are most often written and read by evangelical Christian women, but actually feature what traditionalist religious order? Question number three. Here's a deceptively simple one. Which of the Bronte sisters wrote Jane Eyre? Question number four. It's not especially funny, but this Toronto-based publisher has been providing romance novels to cheesy romance lovers of the world since 1953, and their distinctive, predominantly red covers certainly helps with identifying them at the bookstore. Who is this publisher? Question number five. Despite a, quote, resounding lack of critical acclaim, this romance novelist is the best-selling author alive and the fourth best-selling fiction author of all time writing 179 books, including over 146 novels and counting. Who is this cold, hard author? Question number six. Which historical romance series, now a worldwide phenomenon thanks to its television adaptation, has plenty of material thanks to eight books and counting, with titles like Dragonfly and Amber, Drums of Autumn, and A Breath of Snow and Ashes? Question number seven. The gothic novel Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier is probably best known for its opening line. Can you fill in the blank spoken by the character only known as the second Mrs. De Winter? Quote, last night I dreamt I went to blank again. 
Question number eight. The English Patient, a historical romance novel by Michael Ondaatje, was adapted into a film in 1996 starring a young, handsome Ray Fiennes and what French actress who is not a loaf of bread? Question number nine. Speaking of historical romance, a lot of these romance novels tend to be set in a specific time period thanks to Jane Eyre and a general love of high manners and pretty clothes. What is this time period in Great Britain where King George III was deemed unfit to rule and therefore his son ruled as proxy? And finally, question number 10. I'm going to provide a title and a brief description, and you're going to tell me if it's a real published romance novel or something I made up. Number one, crossing the line. Grace Winters is the racing world's best kept secret, and now the secret's out. The up-and-coming chef hopes her newfound celebrity as an author of a NASCAR-themed cookbook will give her the financial security she craves. Falling for a handsome, much-too-charming playboy Garrett Clark is just a recipe for disaster. Number two, steeplechase. Sexy, brash animal masseuse Taylor Appaloosa has foregone settling down for a high-flying career at the Derby racetrack, but will shy, intense jockey Rex Mustang manage to tear down her defenses and discover her shocking secret that she can talk to horses? And finally, number three, Master of Dragons. The last time fairy princess Nineveh Morrow engaged in magic, evil forcers rendered her an orphan, isolated and incapable of trusting anyone's survival. But after years of hiding on Earth, she'll use her powers once more and attract more knights than she can handle. I'll give you a minute to think about it. We'll be right back with answers. It was a cold night And the snow lay round I pulled my coat tight Against the falling down And the sun was all And the sun was all down And the sun was all the sun was on down I am a poor man I have wealth nor fame I have my two hands And a house to my name And the winter's so And the winter's so long I love this. <laughs> I knew you would. I love this. That's why I was late because I was working on this. Okay. <clears throat> Question number one. This windswept romance novel set in the Australian outback and spanning nearly 50 years concerns a scandalous affair between Maggie, a resident on a remote ranch, and a handsome priest, Ralph de Bricassart. The spiky 1983 television miniseries that was based on it was the second highest rated miniseries of all time behind Roots. What novel am I talking about? The Thornbirds. It is The Thornbirds. Thornbirds, the book, was released in 1977, and it was written by Australian author Colleen McCullough. New York Jets offensive tackle DeBrickishaw Ferguson was named after the priest character Ralph DeBrickasart. Stop it. I am not kidding you. That is 100% true. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you wonder. You wonder what, where, where names did Br- come DeBrickishaw from. come from? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> Question number two. This literary subgenre of romance novels, sometimes called bonnet rippers, are most often written and read by evangelical Christian women, but actually feature what traditionalist religious order? Amish. It is Amish. This is the weirdest thing. So (laughs) most works of Amish romance have protagonists with socially conservative values, especially chastity, who engage in romance in ways which are more socially and religiously acceptable in their communities. So similar works may also feature other religious minorities, such as Mennonites or Shakers Mm -hmm. or Puritans. Um, Unlike many mainstream romance novels, Amish romance novels do not rely on the portrayal of sex and most other forms of physical intimacy. Mm -hmm. They don't even kiss in these novels. Right. They blew up. Like, yeah, yeah, it's really weird. Like it's, um, like, um, um, not the, what's the word I'm looking for? Not like modesty, but like, yeah, it's like a it's, very, it's very like modesty, chastity culture yeah. type thing, but they're, 
but these evangelical Christian authors are like taking on this traditionalist religion that doesn't have anything to do with theirs. Right. Like they're, it, it doesn't make any sense. So I remember shelving them at uh, Barnes and Noble and they were like, there's just so many of them. They have names like, you know, betrayal, yeah. <laughs> betrayal, the hope, you know, stuff that doesn't make it. And they're always like beautiful women in bonnets looking furtively older, over their shoulders. Trouble at the taffy pool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Question number three. Here's a deceptively simple one. Which of the Bronte sisters wrote Jane Eyre? Charlotte. It was Charlotte. So here's the full list, just FYI. Mm-hmm. Charlotte wrote the aforementioned Jane Eyre. She wrote Villette, Shirley, and The Professor. Mm-hmm. Anne Bronte wrote Agnes Gray and The Tenant of Wildfell Hall. And Emily Bronte wrote Wuthering Heights, which is a terrible book. Perfect. Uh, finally, question number four. It's not especially funny, but this Toronto-based publisher has been providing romance novels to cheesy romance lovers of the world since 1953, and their distinctive, predominantly red covers certainly help with identifying them at the bookstore. Who is this publisher? Harlequin. Harlequin. With titles like The Billionaire's Pregnant Mistress and Ruthlessly Bedded, Forcibly Wedded, Harlequin has cornered the market on paperback romances. They also have several categories, including Harlequin Nocturne, which is paranormal romance harlequin presents which quote alpha males decadent glamour and jet set lifestyles are the focus and harlequin super romance all one word which has quote a strong emotional punch and a guaranteed happily ever after this is amazing sometimes you just want to read sometimes you just want to read a happy story you know you just want to read a happy story you don't want to have to think about it yeah (laughs) nothing wrong with that Speaking of, question number five, despite, quote, a resounding lack of critical acclaim, this romance novelist is the best-selling author alive and the fourth best-selling fiction author of all time, writing 179 books, including over 146 novels and counting. Who is this cold, hard author? Oh, Danielle Steele. It is Danielle Steele. Uh, 22 of her books have been adapted for television, including two that received Golden Globes. One is called Jewels, and the other one I could not find. There was no... <laughs> so I, I'm starting to think that it did not. That she did not have two Golden Globes, just the one. Have you ever seen her book's back covers? The back Is it a photo of her? Yeah, it's a full-color photograph uh-huh. of her, the entire back of it. And so she's, 1980s. Yes, she's usually in a full-skirted designer gown. Um, or she's... Lo- shoulder pads. Shoulder pads. She's lounging in a mansion, or she's emerging there from Iron feathers. Gates. Yes. She's in all sorts of things. There's one of her... Crystal. Yes. She's in a in a red convertible and she's just in white fur. She's got a white fur hat. She's got a big white fur coat. Um, she's Sometimes she's posed below a giant oil portrait of her, herself. Like she's sitting on a couch and she's smiling. And then above her is herself, like a huge like floor-to-ceiling painting of herself. And then there's the words in all caps below, everybody reads Danielle Steele. Yeah. It's... She was the the E.L. James of the 1980s. I mean, bless her. She made so much much money. money. Oh my gosh, so much money. She's a billionaire. Question number six. Which historical romance series, now a worldwide phenomenon thanks to its television adaptation, has plenty of material thanks to eight books and counting with titles like Dragonfly and Amber, Drums of Autumn, and A Breath of Snow and Ashes? Outlander? It is the Outlander series, written by Diana Gabaldon. Uh, The Outlander series focuses on 20th century British nurse Claire Randall, whose time travels to 18th century Scotland and finds adventure and romance with the dashing Highland warrior Jamie Fraser. Sounds great. The first novel, Outlander, which was published in the UK, New Zealand, and Australia as Cross Stitch, two words, um, that came out in 1991 with the most recent written in my own heart's blood in 2014. Yeah. It Uh, got dark. I know. It it gets dark, I think. Um, The only reason why I have not watched it is because i have heard much like um game of thrones it is very rapey mm-hmm. uh and i'm just not into that I'm not giving my dollars to them Mm-mm. but i do like that both the main characters the actors are in their 30s like they're in their mid to late 30s which i appreciate yeah don't give all these roles to like 20 somethings um <laughs> so the forthcoming novel with no date yet is rumored to be titled go tell the bees that i am gone I know they're just the yikes they're just getting longer and longer okay question number seven the gothic novel rebecca by daphne du maurier is probably best known for its opening line can you fill in the blank spoken by the character only known as the second mrs de winter 
Quote, last night I dreamt I went to blank again. Manderley. It is Manderley. Manderley is the state in the novel. Um, it has a lot of similarities to Jane Eyre. And one edition of the book was used by the Germans in World War II as a key to a book code. Ooh, so wow. sentences would be made using single words in the book referred to by page number, line, and position in the line. Um, one copy was kept at Rommel's headquarters and the other was carried by uh, German Ebwar agents infiltrated into Cairo after crossing Egypt by car. Um, this code was never used, however, because the radio section of the headquarters was captured in a skirmish and hence the Germans suspected that the code was compromised. Ooh, okay. Yeah. Uh, question number eight, the English Patient, a historical romance novel by Michael Ondaatje was adapted into a film in 1996 starring a young, handsome Ray Fiennes and what French actress who is not a loaf of bread? Juliette Binoche. Juliette Binoche. Elaine Bennis famously hated this movie. <laughs> also, it's the movie where I learned the term supersternal notch, which is this, like your throat where you're, oh, yeah, okay. in between your clavicle. <laughs> supersternal notch. Thank you, English patient. Uh, okay, question number nine. Speaking of historical romance, a lot of these romance novels tend to be set in a specific time period, thanks to Jane Eyre and a general love of high manners and pretty clothes. What is this time period in Great Britain where King George III was deemed unfit to rule and therefore his son ruled as proxy? Regency. It is Regency. Regency is about 1795 to 1837, just FYI. Um, Longer than the actual Regency period, um, but characterized by distinctive trends in British architecture, literature, fashion, politics, and culture. Um, it ended when Queen Vicky came up in 1837. Yeah. Jane Austen's books are all regions. Yes. Which is why it's a big, mm-hmm. like Jane Austen, Jane Eyre, like all of this stuff is very regency. And I think that's why that trope has continued on in romance novels. All right, all right. here we go. And here's where it all goes wrong. <clears throat> I think, I think you got this. I think you're going to get it. Okay. I'm going to provide a title and a brief description, and you're going to tell me if it's a real published romance novel or something I made up. Okay. I'm so proud of this. All right. All right. Number one, Crossing the Line. Is this the one with the cookbook? Uh, I'll, re- I'll read that. Okay. Here we go. Grace Winters is the racing world's best kept secret, and now the secret's out. The up-and-coming chef hopes her newfound celebrity as an author of a NASCAR-themed cookbook will give her the financial security she craves. Falling for handsome, much-too-charming playboy Garrett Clark is just a recipe for disaster. I think it's real. It is real! Good job. Okay, number two, steeplechase. Sexy, brash animal masseuse Taylor Appaloosa has foregone settling down for a high-flying career at the Derby Racetrack, but will shy, intense jockey Rex Mustang manage to tear down her defenses and discover her shocking secret that she can talk to horses? I think this is fake. It is fake. Okay. I was so proud of it. Okay. (laughs) Taylor Appaloosa? I know. <laughs> I was like, I was like Googling horse breeds. Yeah. <laughs> like All right. And finally, number three, master of dragons. The last time fairy princess Nineveh Morrow engaged in magic, evil forces rendered her an orphan, isolated and incapable of trusting in anyone's survival. But after years of hiding on earth, she'll use her powers once more and attract more knights than she can handle. I think this one's real. It is real. You got to. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Excellent. Well, you know what? That's it for me, guys. (laughs) We're shutting it down. We're shutting it down. Two before 100. Sorry. Julie got all 10. This is the only reason why we made this podcast. That's the reason why this podcast existed. (laughs) We had to get 10 right. Now we've broken the spell. Now we've broken the spell, and now we don't have to do this anymore. Oh my god! Oh thank my you, god. Lord. Thank you, Julia. Um, speaking of people getting things right, yeah. Um, okay, this whole spring, and maybe we should have told people to watch it, like oh, when it yeah. started. But uh, the Mental Samurai oh was a game show on Fox this spring, and um, listener Heather Hurley was on it. Yes, and Heather Hurley got right through that first round so fast. And then she made it to the tower, so poised. And she got 
a nice chunk of money. And then she made it to the finale. Yeah. And uh, I just want to say congratulations, Heather Hurley. She is the mental samurai. She is the mental samurai. She's amazing. She, she was, listens to our podcast. She does, which is so weird. I like to think that we are a little part. We are <gasps> we are like her pages <laughs> as she is the mental ceremony. She um she mentioned that it was um fun she listened to some of our episodes trying not to think about the trivia robot arm that would be hurling <laughs> her around the studio. So that was really fun. So uh, congratulations, Heather. Yeah, Hurley. congratulations, Heather. That's awesome. And so if you haven't watched the show, I know that the episodes are on Hulu right now. So you yeah. know, you can make your way through that through that She's- game show with Rob Lowe. Oh, Rob Lowe so standing in exactly what Chris Harrison would have done. Yeah, you know. exactly. Also, just as handsome. Yeah. Just as chiseled. Unaging. It, unaging. Absolutely. Rob Lowe looks great. Heather, send us a message. Tell us how Rob Lowe looks up close. Yeah. Give us those deets. Give us those hot deets. Um, so, yes. Congratulations, Heather. Great job. So proud of you. That was awesome. You, it looked like you didn't even break a sweat through that whole thing. And if you want to be the mental samurai, yeah. you can, mm, I don't know. I don't know. Email I don't Fox, know. I guess. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> bone up. Yeah. You can listen to some of our past episodes. Yeah, do it. Um, so you can find us on pretty much any podcast platform you listen to. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. Yeah, basically. Basically all of them at this point. I would think so. Yeah. And, uh, you know, rate, review, and subscribe, friends. Yeah. If you want to get in touch with us, um, you can shoot us an email. We're misinfopod at gmail.com. Uh, we're on Twitter at misinfopod. We have a Facebook page, Misinformation, a trivia podcast. And we have a website, www.misinfopod.com. <laughs> tell us how you did on that quiz. Yeah. Please tell and tell me about your fam- favorite romance novels. I am certainly not somebody who reads romance novels. Not that that's a, a judgment call. I just didn't ever get into it. Um, but I would love to hear what you thought of that quiz. So, um, thanks uh, so much for listening, you guys. We'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> We've broken the curse. <laughs> <laughs>